Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every week to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. Glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Hello, you two. What is, uh, what's happening here in middle of October? Not much in the country, I know, but uh, what about your own <laughs> <Nothing>. lives? <laughs> There's nothing cluttering the bandwidth of uh, our personal or collective mental health. What's, how do you doing? You know, um, allergy season is upon us. I've never had allergies before moving here, but definitely uh, waking up every day thinking, how much did I drink last night? And realizing I didn't drink anything last night. That's just allergies. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Totally. You know, they say that uh, a lot of the students I've talked to who've had COVID say that it feels like seasonal allergies. And so I, I definitely had one of those moments last week where I, gosh, I, I feel like, do I, am I, do I have COVID? Right. And uh, no, it's just, there's a, there's, I forgot about the second spring sort of thing that's happening right now. Yeah. Our daughter had a cold this past week, which was just allergies. And I straight up got her COVID tested and the pediatrician mm. was like, so kids get 12 colds a year. <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, gosh, Annie's got to buckle up for something getting shoved up her nose every month because we're paranoid. Ooh, so I she's the okay, worst though. thing ever. Have you, have you guys gotten that COVID test where they, they tickle your brain with the Q-tip? Yes, 100%. <laughs> You've got a minor brain bleed going? Exactly. Yeah, Worth perfect. it. <laughs> Do I have COVID? No. And I know that. <laughs> What's happening in RJ land? Uh, it's been... It's been kind of a difficult week, to be honest with you. Um, two of my close friends who are um, rectors at other churches have had kind of prominent suicides in their congregations. Um, we've had, you know, some some other people closer to where I'm um, in Florida are struggling with their mental health. Um, a college, a college student in our congregation um, came down with COVID and had some was had some kidney failure, mm. um, but she's actually out of the hospital, which is good now, you know. And then I think on top of that, and and not I don't you know I don't want to be too much of a downer, but I think just naming as I, as I have a little bit before, um, yeah, I feel guilty to name this, but I think my wife and I and our family in general, I know a lot of people feel this way. We're just kind of lonely. Mm. It's a lonely time. You know, and I felt I felt guilty about saying that because I'm like, well, surely my loneliness is mainly tied up in sort of having moved and being in a new place and not having the opportunity to make friends and you know, the school year being so weird. But the truth is, you know, as I listen to people and I talk to people, everyone's lonely, you yeah. know, even if they live in the same place forever, even if they have really good friends around the corner, mm-hmm. you know, that they maybe haven't seen in quite a while. Um, and I was talking to a friend of mine who's... Uh, who's, um, he's a, he's a therapist. And he said, you know, we, we underestimate the power of like small, positive social interactions, like smiling, you know, having the, the cash register, cash cashier at the grocery store smile at you. We don't yeah. see people smiling anymore because everyone's wearing 
a mask. And so, you know, maybe you see them smile via Zoom, <laughs> you know, um, but it's, but then even eye contact is weird over Zoom, you know, it doesn't quite happen. Yeah. Um, so I think it's just kind of, it's a lonely time. Mm. And uh, so, yeah, it's been, it's been an interesting week. So that's how I'm doing. We have a, you know, we have this mom's group I do, but there's a men's group at the church too. And they're all guys our age, which, you know, men in their thirties and forties are notoriously bad at having friends and they meet via zoom. And last week they decided to meet like literally under the portico share at church and just like hang out in person. And then last night I was like, babe, where are you going? He's like, we decided to hang out in person again. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, like, I mean, that to me says something that guys in their 30s and 40s, like two weeks in a row are like, hey, can we just sit in lawn chairs and laugh together? Like, you know, six feet apart. Like, that's where we are. So yeah. I was watching uh, some terrible. Well, it wasn't that good. This new show on Netflix called The Unicorn, which is about a young guy who's widowed, who, who becomes a widower. And he's the the. the it's about his sort of re-entry into online dating and my wife and I was very heavily written and not that good, but um, there was a point at which all of these sort of men in their mid forties were just hanging out one night together. And I said, this is the most unrealistic thing that we've seen. so far. (laughs) (laughs) Not these beautiful homes where everyone's sort of like quirky and, you know, it's, it's, it's a perfectly diverse cast and everyone's, you know, the, the kids are giving just the right amount of quippiness. That's not actual attitude. And, uh, none of the parents are really getting that mad. And, uh, but I was like, well, I think the most unrealistic thing are these men in their forties hanging out together. Um, it, you know, RJ, what you're saying is it, it really jives with a lot of what we're going to talk about today. In fact, I think there's like a slow drip um, of anxiety and loneliness that has happened through COVID. We were t- I was talking about this in our little staff meeting yesterday with my f- colleagues, but there's a, you know, over time... Again, like this morning I was getting coffee at the local place and I had my mask on and there was another two other people there. And as I was leaving, I sort of like, I smiled and I realized no one could see that. No one can see that. That's right. uh, And instead, and who knows if they smiled. Instead, I just saw these eyes staring back at me and you fill in the blanks and just be like, I guess we're just automatons. It it felt very automated in a way that is like, this is too bad. It's just too bad. Yeah, and and we're even, you know, we are finally this Sunday kind of beginning our regathering, you know, even as now, of course, Florida, as lots of places in the country are seeing an uptick again in their COVID cases. So it's like, how long will this last? And we're having some in-person meetings and doing some stuff, but still, you still, you feel it. You know, you still you still feel the 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 strangeness, and people are naming it. It's like it's good to be back together, but it's also the, I'm tired of wearing this mask. I'm tired of being a little bit separate and and wanting for it to be over. And and it also seems like it's not going to be over for a while. People, it's, it sounds like we're, we'll be wearing masks for like another year or something. Yeah, but Paul um, Walker was saying the end is not in sight, but there is an end. That <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's the end right may not there. be in sight, and and maybe in certain places it is. I don't know. Right, right here in Virginia, it doesn't feel like it's in sight. And here in just, South Florida, yeah, definitely not. Um, yeah, but you know, let's talk about this first article, which is that comes from a, a newsletter from a writer and journalist named Mo Perry. This is uh, she's uh, new to me, but she, her byline's been everywhere. And uh, Alan Jacobs actually highlighted this. I thought it was fantastic. She's got a newsletter called "The Unfurling," and she begins by talking about what what we've called before is the great unraveling, and she calls the great rearranging, and that we're seeing during COVID of you know just 
social ties and all sorts of um, everyday rituals being rearranged in some ways in uh, really unpleasant you know fashion and some ways perhaps as she's saying, there might be some, some, some positive parts. This is what she says, though. She says, my social media feed is full of people scolding others who have the audacity to try to salvage a shred of joy and pleasure from their lives. The lens seems largely political, as if anyone experiencing pleasure or expressing joy while Donald Trump is president is tacitly endorsing him. The communally encouraged state of being is dread and misery and rage. People who eat at restaurants, people who let their kids play on playgrounds, people who walk around the lake without a mask, all condemnable, contemptible, selfish. How dare they? But as I was prepping to write this newsletter, I posed the question on Facebook and Twitter. Do you feel like you have to hide or are less inclined to share pleasurable or fun activities you do outside your home? The answers were striking. A lot of folks said yes. And the reasons they gave were only partially about COVID risk shaming. They also mentioned wanting to be seen as appropriately somber in this dark time of civil unrest. This is certainly true for me. Earlier this month, I flew to California for a few days to visit one of my best friends. She picked me up at LAX and we drove to Palm Springs where we had an Airbnb for two nights. We stopped at the grocery store on our way to the house, stocked up for the weekend, and other than a morning hike on Saturday, we spent the whole time hanging out at the house until she dropped me off at the Palm Springs airport on a Sunday afternoon. We didn't share a single picture or post about the trip online. Not on Instagram, not on Facebook, not on Twitter. On the one hand, it felt like a naughty indulgence, something we had to do on the DL to keep from getting in trouble. On the other, it was a revelation, this chance to rediscover privacy, to inhabit my experience without broadcasting it or framing it for public consumption. I wonder if that's one of the gifts embedded in this wild pendulum swing away from packaging our lives for constant digital consumption toward a wariness of the judgment of others. I don't love that shame and fear are the driving forces, but maybe those things will self-correct a bit as the pendulum settles. And we'll be able to keep this new immediacy, this direct experience of reality, this full-bodied inhabiting of our complex offline lives. I mean, that's expecting a lot, but... Um, <laughs> um, I mean, I it's so interesting to think about this because I, I feel it... Uh, this is like one of those pieces um, that I feel personally attacked by just because there are definitely things I've done that like either I've put a photo up and been like, Oh God, you know, like what's going to be the backlash from this or I haven't documented it at all. Mm. I mean, my mom was here in Houston visiting us when Houston was like, you know, all over the news is the numbers being super high. And she has like the cutest group of progressive lady friends. And she was like, no one can know, you know, like don't put any pictures up. No one can know. And I mean, honestly, just the other day I was on the phone with a friend of mine who is very progressive and very like bound by, you know, the understandable rules of the pandemic. And we had gone over to, Oh my gosh, am I saying this on the that for the for the radio waves of people to listen, uh, we had gone to friends' houses and had dinner. <laughs> um, and you know they're really careful and all those caveats and blah 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 blah. But like we went to friends' houses to have dinner, and 
Yeah. I mean, and we did that for a lot of different reasons. We love these friends. Our kids are friends. They also have a lot of like personal victories and hard stuff they've gone through recently. And it just, and so have we, and it just felt like good to get together. Anyway, these are all my excuses for having dinner with friends, but I'm on the phone with this other friend the next day and I had a margarita and I felt terrible that morning. Like I was like, Oh my gosh. And I said, I don't feel good. Josh and I had a margarita last night because I didn't want to say we'd been to dinner at friends' houses. Mm. And it was the best thing we've been able to do in the past few weeks. Mm. Yeah, because there is there is the COVID risk shaming that goes on. But But what she's saying is that you just feel this injunction to match everyone's somberness and that you can't, um, you can't, uh, you can't, uh, I don't know, that, I'm that glad if, I'm winning on that on that score. I'm yeah, glad I'm I mean, able to be appropriately somber today. <laughs> Arjay's had a RJ's had a terrible week, so uh, totally I'm totally winning that battle. Where does this hit you, hit you, Rucker? I mean, as as you, I don't. I was thinking about it. First of all, I'm not. I don't think I'm as involved in social media as you guys are. At least Sarah. I'm just. I'm just not really. Um, but I'm thinking about the things I've posted or the things that I've seen my parishioners post. You know, I'm thinking about my my wonderful um, sexton, which is kind of fancy Episcopal word for the guy who basically takes care of our property. He's been here for 40 years. And he and his wife just went on an amazing family reunion <clears throat> up to like Delaware and and Charleston. And they posted everything, you know, and it was really joyful and wonderful. And so I'm so thankful that he and his wife did not feel any of that um, pressure not to express their express their joy. So I don't know if I feel that. And we've, we've definitely done quite a bit of traveling. You know, my, my oldest son came home from college last weekend my uh, middle son's girlfriend's been here to visit. He's been to Houston to visit her because we're just trying to keep him like as happy and engaged socially with the friends that he does have. Mm. And I don't think I don't feel like I've tried to hide that. I mean, I haven't posted all about it, but that's not really my my nature anyway. Um, I mean, there are two things that hit me about this. One, when she talks at the end about like what was the quote, Dave? The the unmedi- unmediated immediacy of of kind of the now or something, living in the present. Yeah, the, um, the new immediacy, the direct experience of reality. Yeah, that's where I feel like I am almost too much. <laughs> you know, like, it's all now, it's all today. It's 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 difficult to um, think clearly about what's going to come next because you don't know what's going to come next. Um, and so I feel like things are pretty immediate, right now, probably too immediate. Um, but then the other thing, that the, the title of the article, The Great Rearranging, um, I know what she means, and yet, you know, the one thing that I seem unable to rearrange that I wish I could is myself. You know, like, <clears throat> everything around me may be changing, um, but I'm still me. <laughs> you know, my wife is still her. It reminds me of that David Foster Wallace quote, you know, at the, was at the end of the day, you end up becoming yourself. <laughs> um, and, and there's, you know, there's some good things about me and there's some things about me that I wish were different, you know, but probably aren't going to change. Um, so I can't rearrange myself, which is a little, uh, discouraging sometimes. But then the other side of that, you know, and, and we're going to talk more about this, um, the, we also don't, you know, the relationship that we have with God has not been rearranged. Thank goodness. Like, he he has not been rearranged, you know? So, like, I may not be able to rearrange myself, but I also, uh, God is the same 
you know, today as he was yesterday. And he's not, you know, he's not sweating it out in heaven being, what's going to come next? Oh my gosh, that's totally out of control down there. So I'm trying to hold on to that, uh, even in the midst of this sort of um, somberness and, and in uncertainty. That's kind of where, it, yeah, that's where this article well, hit me. The, 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 I don't know, the, the relationship we have with privacy has become such a strange... It's become so strange. Uh, I remember, you know, we used to talk about people having private lives, and and those that that line gets blurred, and especially when you're performing your private life for the masses or whatnot. And maybe, maybe, maybe only younger people do that, or certain aspects of the, <clears throat> excuse me, of the population. But uh, to reclaim a little bit of privacy for privacy's sake, not for, not because you're doing something illicit, just because um, you don't have to share everything with the world. I, I don't know. It, it struck me as a nice, um, uh, 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 kind of a beautiful, perhaps uh, overly optimistic thought about what this could be doing. Um, that if people feel a little less or a little more compunction or reserve about sharing every single one of their experiences, then maybe wouldn't wouldn't all feel the same amount of FOMO all the time. But privacy is, uh, you know, Sarah. I think you've you've mentioned it before, but. I, I, you wonder uh, with um, people who share a ton of stuff about their kids online, like how the kids will feel about that when they get older, you know, and that kind of privacy. And I was, I was, I was also thinking about this in terms of our, um, just in terms of the, the, the political issues going on right now. And it strikes me as some kind of, there, in, in the time when it feels like bipartisan issue platforms are shrinking, it still feels like something about online overreach could, um, for you know, for the the left see it more as a mental health issue, and the right sees it more as like a liberty privacy thing. But whatever the case, it feels like that could be something that people come together on. Um, because uh, this in- incursion into one's private life, or the, the sense that people don't even know what a private life is anymore. Um, I don't know. But Dave, I will say, as you talk about privacy, this isn't exactly, I know you're talking about it in terms of social media, but right now, I don't want more privacy. I want less. <laughs> you know, I want more community. I want more interaction. Like, I don't want it online. I want it physically. But like, I feel like my 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 wife and I, we, our family, we've had enough privacy. Like, we'd like a little more, um, you know, bumping up against other people, uh, Fair yeah, enough. So. Fair enough. <laughs> You're not going to get that, you know, through pictures. It's funny. I did a, um, we, we were doing like a lot more outreach this semester with our students, um, at Rice, just honestly, because like, I think it's really good for everyone's mental health to kind of get out of their heads. And so we did this little project and we we're out in a courtyard and I had on my light pink story makers sweatshirt shout out. And one of my students showed up in a, the exact same color sweatshirt, but it said faith on it. It was so beautiful. And I was like, let's get a picture together. And we totally got a picture together and we both had masks on, but we like, we're like doing the sorority girl, like arm around each other thing. Yeah. And I posted it and I was like, what if I get fired? <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, boy, like yes. it was like immediately I was like, this is such a beautiful, joyful moment and what if i lose my job and i and i'm not going to but i think that's the level of fear and anxiety that we live with and also to rj's point 
that is the deep desire for connection and for touch and for mutual joy that we can get lost in in a really beautiful way. God help you if you're single. Oh my gosh. Well, I also, it also, Sarah, and and this is one of the things that Mo talks about earlier on in the newsletter is that 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 fear of it looking inappropriate in some way, um, it definitely sounds like you're, it's 90s evangelicalism, you know, like you're, oh, uh, 100%. Leave room for the pandemic. (laughs) Both feet on the floor. (laughs) And how those, the people that feel the warrant or even moral urgency to publicly call folks out, those hats have switched a little bit, right? At least right now. But the the effect is the same. We all want to hide and not tell anyone what we're really doing. Right. Sarah, we had the exact same thing at our church where a bunch of um, outreach volunteers had gotten together to pack um, goodie bags for healthcare workers at our local hospital. And they took a picture in the parish hall, like sort of right next to each other. And yes, they were wearing masks, but one of them posted it to Facebook and I took it down immediately. And I called her and I said, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm so thankful you did this, but you know, we need to be consistent or send the right message or whatever, you know, and it's difficult. Spin, spin, it's spin, 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 <laughs> spin. Yeah, she oh, was totally, under, she totally got it. We we found another picture to post, but so there you go. Guilty as charged. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, let's move on to this next thing from the New York Times. Uh, is then the kind of a eye catching title: "The Real Divide in America Is Between Political Junkies and Everybody Else." Huh. This is Yana Krup- Krupnikov and John Barry Ryan, who um. This is what they say. The common view of American politics today is of a clamorous divide between Democrats and Republicans, an unyielding, inevitable clash of harsh partisan polarization. But that focus obscures another enormous gulf, the gap between those who follow politics closely and those who don't. Call it the attention divide. What we found is that most Americans, upward of 80 to 85 percent, follow politics casually or not at all. Just 15 to 20% follow it closely. Those are the people we call deeply involved. A Pew study finds that 10% of Twitter users are responsible for 97% of all tweets about politics. Huh. Yep. That's not surprising. At the start of the year, pre-pandemic, we asked people to name the two most important issues facing the country. As expected, we found some clear partisan divides about things like immigration. But on a number of other issues, we found that Americans fall much less neatly into partisan camps. For example, Democrats and Republicans who don't follow politics closely believe that low hourly wages are one of the most important problems facing the country. But for hard partisans, the issue barely registers. This gap between the politically indifferent and hard, loud partisans exacerbates the perception of a hopeless division in American politics because it is the partisans who define what it means to engage in politics. When a Democrat imagines a Republican, she is not imagining a coworker who mostly posts cat pictures and happens to vote differently. She is more likely imagining a coworker she had to mute on Facebook because the Trump post became too hard to bear. We see this effect in a study we did with three other political scientists. We asked a group of over 3,000 Americans to describe either themselves or members of the other party. Only 27% of these people said that they discuss politics frequently. A majority consider themselves moderates. But nearly 70% of them believe that a typical member of the other party talks about politics incessantly and is definitely not moderate. 
For partisans, politics is a morality play, a struggle of good versus evil, but most Americans just see two angry groups of people bickering over issues that may not always seem pressing or important. I thought it was a gut, good gut check before uh, the election as we, uh, and I, I do see this, uh, this is what just social media does or the internet does, it just polarizes. You think that the, that, uh, the, the, the loudest opinions, which are invariably the more extreme opinions, are indicative of everything, of, of the entire quote-unquote other side. And so um, it pushes you to 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 the to another extreme too, because people who are not who are not casually interested or only casually interested in politics are simply not talking about it as much. But that that number, you're right, R.J. The number when you said or Sarah when you said wow, that 10% of users are responsible for 97% of the political content on Facebook on Twitter. That's a that's pretty. Um, yeah, yeah. all are busy. I mean, you know what I mean? <laughs> How do you, what do you, are you eating? I'm worried. They're clearly not going out to restaurants or Palm Springs. Yeah. I mean, this is all like fascinating to me. I hadn't thought about it this way. It's a really interesting reframing of what's happening right now. It makes me feel a little comforted weirdly that it's like, maybe we're not as divided as we want to think that we are, and maybe we don't, I'll just say it, hate each other as much as we want to think that we hate each other. Maybe we've just been taught a really specific kind of rhetoric. I, it's just fascinating. I mean, I will say in our neighborhood, we've had <clears throat> quite a bit of sign stealing. Mm. Um, we have a sign in our yard that says that we are loved and missed by Holy Spirit Church, and no one has taken that one, so that's good. <laughs> That's our only sign. That would be super dark if someone saw that one. (laughs) Wow, you're against that? (laughs) Um, But, you know, I have a a really good friend whose husband served in Afghanistan, and they had a Veterans for Biden sign, and it got stolen out of their yard, which was so sad for me. I mean, politics aside, it's like he served our country, Mm -hmm. and we're not letting him put whatever sign he wants to in his front yard, you know? Um, also his wife took care of children while he served our country. Like, um, and there's been some of that on both sides in our neighborhood. Cause I'm on next door where all the drama happens. Um, so I have paid attention to it. If there's a social media network, Sarah is on it. I'm on it. I'm on all of them. Like, I'm just like, what are people talking about? This is so fascinating. But, um, yeah, I, this is helpful because it, it really does make me, it makes me a little more, I, and I, this is so, I'm not going to say the F word, but I still want to say the F word. This is so effed up that I feel like I have to apologize for finding hope in this, like to point to our early article, but I really, it is hopeful to me and I feel guilty about that. Like, yeah. Because what people hear when you say, I find it hopeful, you're like, well, do you not think the issues are important? Yeah. Well, I don't think they're as important as you think they are, but I do think they are important. And uh, the very fact that not everyone is a a cardboard cutout of the the Fox News or MSNBC thing I see is is comforting. You know what I find... Like what, where I, I, where I am on this and the person I think of, I think of my aunt Mel who married my uncle Bill after he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer mm-hmm. and he has had it now for five years by the utter grace of God. That's and incredible. yes. And she has been by his side through all of it. And 
you know, they are more conservative than I am. And I've seen, you know, some of the stuff that my sweet Aunt Mel, who never listens to this podcast, (laughs) puts on social media. And I think of her when I think of this stuff because I love her so much. And she's not a cardboard cutout. And she has her own political opinions. And those don't get in the way of my gratefulness for her and my wife. I mean... I call her Aunt Mel. They, I mean, they've been married now for like five years. Like I'm an adult and I have a new aunt, you know what I mean? Like, but I, I'm so thankful for her. And I think people need those people in their lives. And I know that we all are like really excited. Some of us about coronavirus, because it means we, we have an excuse to not do Thanksgiving with our family this year. And maybe there'll be some healing that comes out of that. Cause people won't be allowed to get in big, political fights at the dinner table with their families. Who knows? But, um, you know, for me, there's a loss there because I I love those people. Yeah. That's, and that's what I think the earlier article was saying. Like that's a real, the casual interactions that we have that RJ talked about earlier with just random people who may not, who, who have, who, what if, you know, in in our, see, see, in my, my situation, it's not, um, whose sign you have out front it's if you if if because there's no no one who's who's a republican feels any freedom to do that i don't think in this town but um come to texas honey it's not it's not texas it's more like if you don't have a sign out front versus if you do and like that's the only divide here and so i feel like everyone is everyone's constantly do most people have signs Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, interesting. And I never, I never, I don't believe in science. Uh, period. I mean, I just this is a total excuse, but we live in a rectory. Yeah, and I, I think that's true. I think like that's I, right. I can't put it up on church property. We that's don't right. exactly hundred <clears> percent. <throat> like it's church property. No, thank you. Yeah, RJ, what about you in this article? I, you know, it reminded me. I have a friend who used to work at a church in D.C., and he told me in the run up to the twenty sixteen election. A few months before that, they stopped praying for President Obama by name because they knew that after 2016, if they were going to either pray for Trump or Clinton, it was going to be so crazily divisive. They're like, let's just stop praying for the president by name now, you know, before we get to mm. the election. And there's some wisdom in that. Um, it's it's a little bit sad, honestly. You know, you you would hope you would hope that. Um, you know, uh, like we we definitely, you know, we at Holy Trinity, we prayed for, we prayed for President Trump when he had, you know, the coronavirus. And honestly, like I was a little bit nervous about it, but I was like, hey, Jesus tells us to pray for our enemies and to pray for those we love. So like however you feel about him. And I got no pushback whatsoever, which was, which was good. Um, but I think it's a helpful reminder to me that I think, especially as we get closer to the election, there is going to be a little bit of a temptation in me to want to address it in some kind of way, if only to say, like, hey, let's be merciful and patient and gracious with each other and remember that there's a God enthroned in heaven no matter what, and that we don't put our 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 confidence in any earthly power. Um, and I, I was almost, you know, headed in that direction this past week because the gospel is actually hmm. one of the few in which— it kind of is overtly political. You know, it's the one where they bring the coin to Jesus and they say, should we pay taxes or not? And they're they're trying to engage him politically. And I was kind of getting ready to preach that kind of sermon. And then I just, I got to Sunday morning and I just didn't. I, I, I preached more about taking sides. 
you know, and about Jesus being on our side and us belonging to God. And and I think it's a reminder that the, regardless of what I see on the Facebook feeds of my parishioners, and some of them, as we've said, are much more politically active than others, and I love them, and God bless them, and they do great work, and they're passionate. Um, it's, you know, the vast majority of people, they just don't want to hear about that in any kind of way in church. They certainly don't want to hear any partisanship, but they may just also not even want to hear about nonpartisanship, you know, and maybe and sort of balance. I think there there are times that are appropriate, you know, to remind people of what is what is true, but not to feel overly pushed into it, but to sort of do what Jesus does, right? You know, render to Caesar what is render to the government which the government's and render to God what is God's. Yeah. And let's keep focused on on what the important important things That's are. That's such a remarkable passage, too, because I know it's not, at least Robert Cabin would say, it's not a passage about the separation of church and state. Don't make it that. It's, but what it is, is Jesus evading a trap. And he yes, evades, yes. he evades every trap. And here he's trying, they're trying to trap him in a political ideology. Yes. And at the time, it seemed all important. The Herodians versus the Pharisees. Which one, yeah, which one are you? nothing more important. And he evades yeah. it, but that doesn't mean he's uh, stoic or quietistic. He still says, Render unto Caesar what's Caesar's, and render unto God what is God's. And you could say, well, everything yeah. is God's, or you could say, well, there's a strict, you know, distinction between these two kingdoms, or something like that. I don't know where you fall in it, but he's not advocating um, apathy, but he is, but he's also evading a trap. And I always feel like I, I, I wrote in Seculosity um, about how I've always described myself, or at least I, I, until about six or seven years ago, I would describe myself as apolitical. It's not, I don't mm. think it's the main thing going on in life. I just, and no. at least I'm, I'll leave that to other people. And, uh, but about six to seven years ago, I started to get the sense of like, when I said that in certain contexts, it was, I was, um, saying I don't care or I was mm. saying, um, well, yeah. And also like you're a straight white guy. I'm sure people are like, Oh, now it's that you have the privilege of saying you're apolitical. And, um, so I don't say, I don't say it anymore. Yeah. Um, but I still, it's what, what, like, stop ruining dinner parties, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, it, but what it became though, in it, whether you market it to privilege or you market to just apathy or whatever, people thought it was heretical. It was her, heretical. It became. It became. And it, you know, I'm sure there's some superiority mixed up in that. And I should repent of my. Uh, you know, you're right. I, I probably you have to believe in something. <laughs> but it's a. It, I was like, gosh, this is heretical. I'm by saying this, I am like attacking uh, when people have put all of their faith in. In you know, you know, just how many more times do I need to be told to vote this this election? And it's. I mean, but do you have a plan to vote? Oh, yeah, have you? voted yet do you have a plan <laughs> no i don't have a plan i'm registered to vote i'm gonna go to the normal place that i vote and i'm gonna tick some boxes i guess and wait in line for six hours have you thought through this <laughs> i don't know i better spotify is is urging me incessantly to decide we're gonna need to see the sticker when it happens dave okay <laughs> the sticker the i voted sticker which is the secular uh you know um ashes on the forehead and you better bring your kid with you okay yeah, exactly. This is an important lesson for them to know that. Hundred percent. I'm I'm a, I'm a, I'm I'm currently alienating a lot of our listeners. Kids don't have enough stress right now. Let's make it worse. Uh, 
Well, any other thoughts on this? I, again, but I when I read this article, I was I was very comforted, Sarah, and and unapologetically mm. so. I was like, well, I'm not the only one who who because the other day I was at also at a dinner party where someone was asking, well, what do you think the main issues are that are that are that are affecting the country? And you know, this person said gun control, and this person <laughs> said you know political campaign finance, and this person said simply the person of Donald Trump or this person said, uh, you know, and I was like, I said... The uh, distinction between law and gospel. <laughs> <laughs> I, I said the thing I said earlier. I was like, I, th- I think that uh, that this stuff with Silicon Valley is uh, warping all of our minds. And if if there was a bipartisan push to, to somehow rein that in, in some kind of humane, mental health focused way, I'd be all over it. That would be a single issue thing for me. But that's not on the ballot at all. So it's like, well... Let's go on to a, a much more positive article, which is something CJ wrote about yesterday. Now, I forget if we talked about Helena Diabala uh, a few years ago, but this is a woman who's, who started something called the Craigslist Confessional. Um, she, uh, I'm going to read what CJ writes, and then also she's written a book called the Craigslist Confessional, which sounds absolutely awesome. When she immigrated to the United States at the age of 12, Helena Diabala had plenty to lament. Her parents had sacrificed immeasurably. Sleeping on a futon from ages 13 to 18, Bala had solutions, too. Hers included working hard and striving, quite literally, for the American dream. As a teenager, she worked alongside her mother, cleaning houses on weekends. She studied hard, excelled in school, and eventually graduated and made it as a lawyer and lobbyist in D.C. I'd worked hard to finally win my American dream, she writes in the introduction to Craigslist Confessional, only to find a mirage in its place, an experience very different from what I'd expected. All her solutions fizzled. She was left feeling alienated, misunderstood, dismissed, and shut out. And then she writes, But I didn't feel entitled to complain. Each day on my way to work, I passed at least five homeless people and reminded myself, You have it good. You are employed. You are educated. You are healthy. You have so much more than most people. So I shamed myself into a disquiet silence. A particularly dismal day resulted in her sharing a sandwich with Joe, a homeless man who could be found sitting outside her office every day. First, she made small talk, asking him questions. Then he asked questions back. And here's Helena writing again. I surprised myself with what I shared. Thoughts that had until then seemed so personal and devastating, but paled in comparison to Joe's everyday struggle. For the first time, I was able to be refreshingly honest. I spoke without fear that he'd judge me or that he would, the gossip would trickle down to friends, family, and coworkers. Neither of us had anything to gain from the other. Ours was an interaction born out of need. It felt simply like we were confessing. This is CJ writing now. Bala went home and posted an ad on Craigslist that said, tell me about yourself. And so she began listening to people for free. Most meetings would span between one and two hours, though her longest, she writes, took about eight hours. The project would always first and foremost about listening, about creating space for others to share fearlessly without reservation. Now, CJ writes, if before the pandemic we needed to talk, now we certainly do, to complain, to fume, to grieve. What we certainly do not need are easy solutions from armchair experts. By contrast, what Bala discovered is this. This is her writing. People needed to talk. Not to converse, not to get advice, not to have clever repartee. They needed to get things off their chests, truly to vent. So the interviews went from a conversational style in the very beginning to very one-sided, about 95% them, 5% me. I listened. I asked occasional questions, mostly to clarify details. Maybe I asked a leading question or two, just to get at the heart of something. But for the most part, I wanted to create the impression that I was not there at all. 
that the person was talking to him or herself out loud. Even thoughts are transformed, filtered when they're just when they're thought for an audience. I wanted very little of that filter, so I practiced listening, just listening, not thinking about how I was going to respond, not interjecting, not creating any sort of personal or emotional reaction to something shared. This was very hard. And what she found is what we all find, CJ writes, that in private, in private, people are suffering. Not only that, but often our suffering is self-inflicted. Our minds are at war with our lives. Yet the book maintains an inherent hopefulness. By its very existence, we know that no confessant suffers alone. Each has his or her opportunity to share, to be heard, to know that they are not the only ones. Occasionally, too, you may encounter a surprise ending, a happy twist, but pure listening achieves more than simply letting the speaker feel known. Lending an ear without prescription communicates the absence of judgment in a way that exceeds mere tolerance. If a confession is juicy enough, listening may even verge on forgiveness or create a similar effect, a visceral release from one's long-held burdens. An hour to vent might create space for something unusual to happen. Healing. God bless Helena Diabala. Mm. What do you say, you two? I had a um, conversation with my youngest brother, Daniel, who I just... I love. He's a, a teacher up in Brooklyn. Um, his wife is an architect. They just had their first um, child, a son, like a, a few months ago. Um, and so it's been a difficult, you know, it's been a joyful, but a difficult time. Like you guys know what it's like to have a new baby and, and they're kind of working from home. He's actually teaching in person and doing Zoom at the same time. And I think it's it's challenging. Um, but, you know, he, I said, how are you doing? He said, well, he said, I, he said, I'm, I'm doing okay, like not great. And we talked about thankfulness, you know, because everyone will say, and it's true, I guess, you know, what do they say? It helps to be thankful and having an attitude of thankfulness, like, you know, changes your brain chemistry and helps you deal with difficulty more readily. And he's like, I have so much to be thankful for. And yet, um, this burden of feeling like I should be thankful all the time, I just feel so guilty that I'm not more thankful. Like, I try to be thankful. Um and uh, so we basically just had a venting session with, with each other about how life was going. And it was really helpful, you know? And I would say my wife and I have also been venting to each other a little bit. It's been really helpful. It is helpful just to have someone who's willing to listen, to not fix, to not redirect, to not um, make it about them, but just to listen to you, to like, like she's saying, to get it off your chest. And um reminds me of a, an episode of the podcast Radio Lab from a few years ago called clever bots where this computer scientist created a program that mimicked a um, therapist and he thought it was kind of a joke. And then his secretary and students got like totally addicted to it, <laughs> you know, because even though they knew it was a computer program, it asked the right questions and knew how to mirror back and um, it was very helpful to them as they just kind of got a bunch of things off their chest. So I think it's it's a very helpful and hopeful article. And, and I think we, we do feel guilty about venting. We do feel like we should have our act together. We should be more thankful. We're not allowed to feel the way that we feel, especially if we have um, achieved any kind of success in life. It's like we don't have the right to be sad. Uh, and that is a very heavy burden to carry, especially right now. You know, that on top of the negative feelings that we may be be harboring, we have this added layer of guilt and shame on top of it because we we should be feeling differently than we are. 
Um, so to have someone come into your life and say, no, it, it, it just lay it on me. It's okay. Uh, is tremendously, uh, tremendously healing. Um, well, I do want to say that I feel like you need to be on the right combination of meds to be thankful. So <laughs> that's your weekly plug, right? <laughs> For medication. Keep those checks coming from GlaxoSmithKline. I don't know. It, it kind of, it made me think actually about, um, something I preached on Monday night to my students. So we do like the next Sunday's lectionary. Um, and this, this coming Sunday is, um, you know, the, the Pharisees asked Jesus what, you know, the greatest commandment is. And he says, you know, love the Lord, your God and love your neighbor yourself. And it felt like a really burdensome thing to preach to my students right now because their semester, I mean, I went to Ole Miss and it was really easy. <laughs> and, um, Rice is really hard, and so they're having a, a very challenging college experience. And um, because of COVID, the semester has been shortened. And so what is already an intense experience has been turned up to a 15. Mm. Um, and there's mental health stuff that students are dealing with. There's just the workload that they're dealing with. And I was just like, I, they can't come in here and be told they have to love God better and more. And um, it occurred to me that God is much less worried with how well we love Him and much more concerned with loving us, And which is what I preach to them. And I think, you know, when we're able to say things like that as priests and pastors to people— we're able to give them that space actually to say my life is falling apart and my mental health is not great. And I can't stay on top of all of the assignments I've been given. Um, and I don't know if I'm going to make it. And I think people always need that space, but right now, especially like people are desperate. People are dying for that space. I mean like that, yeah. you know, we, we are hearing about suicides with more regularity. Um, this week in our neighborhood, um, uh, two women were out for a walk, um, older ladies, and they were hit uh, by a car. Their physical persons were hit by a car, and it was a young mother who was driving her baby around trying to get the baby to go to sleep, and she'd fallen asleep oh, at the wheel. Goodness. Oh, my gosh. Um, and, you know, one of, the, one of the women died. It was just horrible, horrifying. Um and really could have happened at any time. But I mean, I have to be honest with you. When I think about all the stress that that young mother is holding right now, in addition to having a baby, in addition to not sleeping, it's like, yeah, I mean, that's where people are. Mm -hmm. um, and so great tragedy is kind of happening and people need to talk about, they need to talk about it. Yeah. Golly. Yeah, they don't need privacy to go back to what. It, yeah. I totally hear you, RJ. I think you're totally right. Like it's, um, yeah, I mean, people don't need privacy. They don't need the internet either. Though. No, they don't. They don't. The social media is not a helpful place to uh, to put it all. It's not the same thing, but it, it, that's, I get it. Like I get, I get the oversharing. I get the need for connection. Like, yes. I, 
Yeah. Yeah, and it and it then but then it just sort of collapses into that sort of other pleasure of just judging. So I was um, in the presence of some colleagues recently, and uh, they were talking about uh, Jim Nestigan, who is a Lutheran theologian and pastor, and he said one of the great skills that anyone can learn, and I think he was talking specifically about clergy, but I think it applies much more widely than that, is to learn how to listen, uh, how to tell when people are confessing to you. And to have ears to not just mouth to proclaim the gospel, but to hear when someone is actually confessing. And he, there's that story that I've heard Mm. about him of being on the trans uh, transcontinental uh, flight and sitting next to a guy who makes it very clear that he's not a Christian after he finds out what Jim does for a living. But then then starts to share all about his experience in Vietnam and how terrible it was and how it's dogged him for the rest of his life. And then at the end, he said, "Well, you," he said, "Well, um, you know, is there anything else you want?" To get off your chest, or if they, are these all of your? And he's, I think Jim says, "Are these all of your sins, or do you have any th- more you want to lay on the on the pile?" And he says, "Wait, what? I haven't been confessing." And he says, "Well, just well, then, is there anything else you have to say?" And the, he goes on for a little longer, and he says, "But you know, I'm not a believer. I, I don't, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't be- believe in God." But he's like, "Well, just are, is there anything else you have to you have to say?" And finally, Jim is like, "Well, let me just." I'm gonna, he gets up out of his seat, and the 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 the, uh, the flight attendant goes nuts, and he's because they've got the fastened seatbelt on. And he says, in the name of Jesus Christ, I proclaim all of your sins completely uh, forgiven and absolved. And uh, and the guy just starts weeping. Dave, you're going to make me cry. Again, God is not concerned with how much we love God. God is so much concerned with loving us. Yeah, and then the guy is like, wait, can you say that again? And he says it again. And he says, you know, you're going to... And then Jim tells the guy, he says, you know, you're going to get home and you're not going to believe what I've just said. And I want you to call me next time you need. Uh, and and th- so the guy ends up calling him every like couple weeks for years until he dies. And the, he like calls Jim from his deathbed and he, he, he listens and he can. So it's this idea that we need to listen to, to, to know when someone is confessing. Because people are confessing. Holy moly. People are confessing all the time. I am doing it all the time. I had an experience. I was, I was trying to find a new therapist here. And I, I, I got the name of someone, f- and the person. It just it turns out I should have read the the bio better because he kept saying he was he had a very proactive approach, <laughs> and this person like just kept interrupting me and like, yeah, he ended up dropping a couple f bombs like before I'd even sort of you know I've always thought that I always thought that the rule of thumb is like wait until the person you're listening to uses that language and you sort of mirror yeah, back. I need to back. start doing that. Okay, I'm taking notes. Keep going down. Anyway, the guy <laughs> the guy didn't listen. I was able to say a few things, but mainly he wanted to straighten me out. And it was sort of, again, I should have read the fine print, but at the end I was like, this, I feel set back. And um, it's not to say I need someone to just, I need a computer program to listen to me, but that's what I needed. 90% of what I needed was just to be able to tell someone who was not connected to a church, who is not connected to my personal life, uh, just to get some things off my chest and it Mm. failed. And so I, and then, and then to read about Helena and, 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 you know, I, there are other people God puts in your life that can tell when you're confessing. And I think that that's a real prayer for me at least, because sometimes I'm, I want to get through the interaction, or I, I, I think, that, why are they telling me this right now? What, 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 is, what does this have to do with anything? And then uh, to realize maybe they're being moved to confess something, and I don't have ears to hear it. Dave, uh. do you know what this makes me think of? Is the, the eulogy uh, at Whitney Houston's funeral. Yeah. And 
Tyler Perry saying he was out to lunch with her and she was listing off all of the like train wreck that was Whitney Houston's life. And he kept wanting to do that thing friends do where they're like, you know, it's okay. But I mean, it's fine. And she stopped him and said, but my, you know, the Lord Jesus Christ is amazing grace. Like she was like acknowledging confession and absolution, like all at once in front of him for herself, which was very powerful. But yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's often our tendency, you know, (laughs) pastors are people and we do have that tendency to, to want to fix even. And it's Mm -hmm. like, no, that's not, that's not what we're called into. Yeah. Listen, have ears to hear what people are actually trying to tell you. Um, well, let's, uh, let's close here with a wonderful note from Chad Bird, our friend Chad Bird, who, by the way, has, he's got a new devo- Old Testament devotional that's come out, which is great, but he's also a contributor to the Mockingbird, the new Mockingbird devotional, which should be out by the time, sort of before the next episode of this drops. Um, it will be. Uh, Chad wrote a very grabby headline for 1517, their website, saying 2020 is a great year for the church. Woohoo! What? 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 <laughs> <laughs> and he says Winning. that this has been a great year for the church to rediscover some of its central beliefs about sin, repentance, and redemption. And this is, he starts out by saying, neither this global pandemic, the gross injustices, the racial tensions, the mad riots, the macabre political theater, not even Tiger King should have shocked anyone, especially those schooled in the Torah and the prophets. All human history from Cain and Abel onward has amply demonstrated that destruction and stupidity, navel gazing and bloodshed, the ubiquity of fools, and the thin veneer between civilization and anarchy is the norm, not the exception. This year just happens to be a rather colorful sampling of our commonly shared low anthropology. Welcome to Humanity 101, because when the law of God shines its UV lights on us, splatter stains show up on everybody. And yet, we are of no use to this world if all we do is ape the world's rhetoric, antics, and actions. The church is a unique community with a unique message heard nowhere else in the world. One, we call all to repentance, no matter their skin color, sex, political affiliation, or any other factor, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The law of God takes no prisoners, makes no exceptions. If you are human, you are part of the problem of which you are not the solution. That only God's love in his crucified and resurrected son, Jesus Christ, can heal broken hearts, restore shattered communities, and give us the grace to forgive even our enemies." But we must remember we are not the church of Chicken Little, but the church of Jesus Christ. We do not run around screaming that the sky is falling. There is no panic in heaven. Jesus has no sweaty armpits as he surveys the world. Over the chaos of this world reigns the King of Kings, Jesus the Resurrected, before whom every knee will eventually bow, whether they like it or not. Every governmental authority now, presidents, kings, prime ministers, you name it, are in lame duck administrations. Their time is ending. Put not your trust in politicians or parties or ballot boxes. Christ and his kingdom are everlasting. And into that kingdom, he calls us all to find forgiveness, life, and peace. So fear not, my friends. This year will end, as will this dying world. But the church, resurrected to reflect the glorified body of Jesus, will never end. Boom, I guess is the colloquialism. You, you I feel guilty for liking this. <laughs> That's Good. definitely the, 
I feel guilty for liking this is probably going to be the title of our podcast. Yeah, I feel guilty for like. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, there is a lot of rest to be found there, and there's also like a lot of freedom for me in hearing it and thinking about like just being with my children and the simplicity of like just figuring out what we're having for dinner and um, just going to do my job and loving my college students and um, like there's freedom in that. I don't know. I did I tell you guys about the birthday cake? I don't think so. So um, I have this student who is um, really young. A lot of music students. I'm only learning this now. Um, you know, they're like actual prodigies. So they come to school early. So he was 17 when he started college. And um, I did not know when people's birthdays were. But another one of my freshmen said, hey, it's his birthday. And so I was like, you know, I'm going to get him a cake. Like, I've never done it for a student before. I don't think I'm going to do it for any of them afterwards. I don't care. We're going to do a cake for this kid. And so I just felt the need. And so I, you know, I tracked down a cake like day of we show up to worship and he's not there. (laughs) (laughs) and i was like okay so i sent him a text and he's you know just this incredible student he's still like teaching lessons uh over zoom to some of his students um in his hometown and um music lessons it's just incredible and he's like oh they ran late i'm you know i'm really sorry so then i just said to like my group of gathered students like hey who wants to walk across campus with me to find this kid and give him his cake? And they were like, we're down. So there was like this small parade of us and he's headed towards us and we're headed towards him. And we pull the cake out. We put the candles on it. We light the candles. You know, I am a mother of small children. It does pay off in certain circumstances of college ministry. And it's the most, it's pitch black, dark outside. And the only light is this birthday cake candles. And he walks up and we realize he can't blow the candles out and us eat the cake. Like it was such a funny, awkward, you know. And so we pull each candle off individually. I mean, there's such, it's such, it's so like, I will remember it for the rest of my ministry. Like forget any big thing I've ever spoken at. This was like such a palpable moment of God's grace and love and mercy and community. And freedom, it was just a beautiful, that the most important thing happening that night was that it was this 17-year-old's birthday, you know? And I know that people get very nervous, and Josh and I talk about this at home, when you talk about what Chad's writing about, when you talk about that our our citizenship is in heaven and all this sort of language. And I understand all the reasons why people get upset by it, but that doesn't mean it's not true. And when we, when we really buy into that, actually, um, we do things like track down birthday cakes for kids, you know, like we're like, but there's, there is actual joy in this moment we've been given. Mm -hmm. And how can we, um, how can we light candles? Mm -hmm. What struck me was, you know, there have been certain um, theological voices, recent theological voices and movements which have stressed the sort of continuity with our current reality in the kingdom of God, right? That we're sort of, we're living in the kingdom of God, we're building the kingdom of God, we're, I remember seeing that the, the headline for one church I remember I saw once was, we're, we're joining God or partnering with God in the renewal of all things. We've made you God know, our like, administrative assistant, yeah. Yeah, kind of. Um, and 
I, I've never found that particular um, perspective compelling. Like, I understand where it's coming from, as you said, Sarah. I understand the desire to build God's kingdom and, and to see sort of justice and peace reign on the earth. But what I love about—well, first of all, that, that perspective doesn't seem particularly helpful in our given moment, right, um, when things are so hard and so strange. But what I love about Chad's is, is sort of the, the discontinuity— right? That this year will end. The world will end. Everything, um, I think it says in Peter, will will be sort of consumed by fire. But the word of our God and the kingdom of our God and, and, and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ stand forever. You know, a, a much more death and resurrection approach to existence and the Christian life as opposed to you know, um, continuity and improvement, and we're living in the kingdom, and things are getting better, and we're working toward the renewal of all things. And I don't want to completely trash that that perspective. Um, but Chad's is more hopeful to me because it means that God raises dead things to new life; that He breathes His breath into dry bones. And that's what we need right now. You know, I don't, I don't need to be in a kingdom-building project. I need a God who shows up in the midst of, of difficult times, who, as, as and I'm going to preach on the psalm this Sunday, Sarah, because I read that gospel. I was like, there ain't much here. But it's Psalm 96, <laughs> you know, um, and, and what is it? It's, it talks about God being our, our refuge. You know that that uh, from one you know from one generation to another, God has been our refuge. And there's a a line in there where you know how long, O Lord, must we must we wait? And and would that your your deliverance will be as mighty and glorious as the pain we are now experiencing? It just it speaks so powerfully into the present mm. moment. Um, and so I I like what it says about where our true hope lies and letting go of. Uh, of, of things where, where there is no hope. Yeah, well, the, the, you know? one of the things Chad mm-hmm. prefaces the article by talking about he can that that he his entire uh, whatever kuspa he has for um, saying 2020 is a great year for the church is because he suffered his own 2020 uh, about you know 20 years ago through a combination of yeah, uh, addiction right. and infidelity and just uh, financial ruin. He f- feels like he was he died. You know, Robert Capon has a similar yeah. thing about this, and and anyone. Uh, Mary Carr this week uh, tweeted about her own experience 20 or 32 years ago. So good, Dave. That quote was... (laughs) About how she, you know, all the lights had gone out and the people in the basements of the churches were, the the AA was where God had sort of, those those were the lantern keepers. But he, he, as someone who's found life on the other side of that, he is trying to transpose that lesson onto something more globally and, and saying that God actually does do some of his greatest work through these times of, of what feels apocalyptic, personally apocalyptic, or, uh, you know, collectively apocalyptic. And that's that's our hope, and that's what he's saying. And I, I think that for, I trust him with that proclamation more than I would trust, you know, uh, me, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I love hearing that, because he's also saying, you know, the question is, you know, everyone wants life to get easier, people to live in somewhat more harmony, and um, 
basically for the world to, to not be as sad and difficult as it is. And the question is, how does that happen? Does it happen by telling people to shape up and um, by sort of through coercion and force? Or does it happen through love and through forgiveness? And, you know, what's really made a mess of the world is what Robert Capon says. Is it love and forgiveness and uh, unconditional, you know, uh, clemency? Or is it revenge, recompense, and, uh, you know... Or just control. control. Let me let me tell you how to be a better person. Let me let me help you get but your do, act together. But do people feel more free to do the right thing, or to serve, serve, just say serve their neighbor when they uh, feel like their own sins have been forgiven, or that that or the, yes. and that this world is not all there is. Um, I, th- I think they do. I think that that's actually where that sort of freedom comes from. And that's what we, the Christian in the midst of all of this apocalyptic rhetoric can kind of say that in a way that you sometimes want to say, shut up, don't say that. Everything is riding on this. And you want to be like, well, everything and nothing. <laughs> you know, it's like, and, and, and that's what Chad is saying. And I think that's a really beautiful um it's not a, a. In fact, it's not born out of privilege. It's born out of extreme suffering, um, in his case. So that's what I uh, would would say about this article. Any other final thoughts here before we sign off? I mean, buy the birthday cake. Buy the birthday cake. Um, I what I did say earlier was that we, we stay tuned for an announcement about our new devotional. It is. It's done. I have a copy in my hands right now, and it's. Very exciting. It's beautiful. We're just waiting on uh, t- to hear from the, the the people who fold the dusk jackets to make sure that they know what they're doing before we <laughs> unleash it on the world. So stay tuned and um, thank you both for talking. I, I I feel a little guilty for how much fun we've had today. today. I know. <laughs> In the name of Jesus Christ, I absolve all your sins. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, you two. All right, have a great week. Bye. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by TJ Hester. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord.